Well, that was an introduction. Uh, uh, we live in, uh, in a world that can be summarized with a real important technical term. Our world is a mess. I mean, just think about it. We've got the pluralism that we've talked about all weekend. We've come through a pandemic. We've got problems that are tied to issues of race and violence and political divides and cultural war. And actually, if we read the scripture, we shouldn't be surprised because the scripture says that the world is dysfunctional because we have chosen as a culture and as a society to go our own way. So how do you speak into a culture and a world that is there? That's what I want to talk to you about. How's that for a crisp introduction? This is not going to be your normal sermon where I take a passage and spend about 30 to 30, 30 minutes on it and then tuck a little five minutes of application on the end. This is going to be the exact reverse. I'm going to spend maybe five minutes on the passage and I'm going to spend the rest of the time in application. So that's where we're going. So let me put up for on the screen uh, the text that is our text for today. It is James 1, 19 and 20. And this is how it reads. Let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for human anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Just think about that and what that's saying. Because... I would submit to you that the way this topic gets handled in the world is almost the exact opposite. The way the world would read this space would be, let every person be slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to anger, for human anger allows me to get what bothers me off my chest. And that is the ethos and the feel that we've been in for now quite some time with one another in the midst of a world that has become so diverse and come with people coming from many different points of view. That's what pluralism is. I had someone say to me in the break last night, you were talking about pluralism. I'm not even sure I know what the definition of pluralism is. Well, pluralism is the idea that they think of a mall. Think of going to a mall where you've got this store and that store and this kind of uh, thing that's being on sale and that kind of thing that's being on sale and it's coming from this place and that place and that place over there and place way away etc that's pluralism it's the variety the plurality of things both culturally ideologically um, socially uh, culturally that makes up the mix of our world and people are in different places and respond differently and see the world differently. And there's more variety in what we are exposed to, in part because of the way the world has opened up as a world of communication that is now linked. The world is both bigger and smaller at the same time that we live in. There are more of us, but we are more tightly connected through communication than we've ever been. And living with that, how can I say, fire hose, of information has been a challenge for all of us. It's a challenge for everyone, whether you're in the church or not. And so figuring out how to live well in that environment is the challenge that we have and creating a sense 
of mutual accountability with a neighbor who's very different than me is part of what it means to live in our world. And the way people tend to do it is they tend to respond tribally. They tend to withdraw into their own world and create their own igloo, if I can use an image, a cold one, okay? They create their own igloo to live in and try and work as hard as they can to shut out what's going on around them. But the moment we do that, we violate one of the most central commands that Jesus gave the church, which is to go into all the world and make disciples. So how do we do that? How do we engage? How do we connect with people around? And so I'm going to walk you through a theology of conversation and thinking through what it means to engage. So, next slide, please. I'm going to ask the question, how do we turn difficult conversations into profitable ones? In order to do that, we've got to understand the way conversations work. Go ahead and flip the slide. So I'm going to talk about how we talk. And I want us to think about that for a little bit. And I want that James passage to be in the back of your mind. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Next slide. So all important conversations have a triphonic character. Now, if this were, if, if this were a young people's class, I would turn on Sesame Street and say, the word for today is triphonics. I recognize that triphonics is not a word we normally use in our everyday speech. I can tell you honestly, I haven't used it in the last month. But here's what triphonics means. It means that in every conversation that we have, we are operating on three channels simultaneously. Just like stereo speakers, you know, you have sound coming out of two speakers, or the big one when I was growing up, quadraphonic sound. If you're young and you don't know what quadraphonic sound is, ask someone older and you can have a cross-generational moment. <laughs> All right? That used to be four speakers coming at you. Okay? And, and triphonics is the idea that any conversation is operating at three levels at the same time. And if you're not aware of the fact that your important conversations are operating at three levels at the same time, you're missing some of what's going on in that conversation. And here are the three levels. They're there on the slide. There's the topic that you're talking about. I introduced this a little bit yesterday. There's the topic that you're talking about. There's the lens that you see that through, which, by the way, doesn't in all cases, in fact, almost always in all cases, doesn't match the lens that the person you're interacting with is using to look at the same reality. Remember yesterday I used the illustration. All I have to do to illustrate what lenses are is to say Fox and CNN. <laughs> Looking at the same phenomenon that's out there, but interpreting it so very differently that by the time you're all done, you wonder if these people are living on the same planet looking at the same thing. And we all have lenses. We also said yesterday, you cannot escape the impact of culture. We're all enculturated in one way or another by the environment that we're in, and that impacts the lenses that we have and we use to see the world. So lenses are an important part of any part of a conversation. And sometimes people are aware of the stereo level of the topic and the lens. 
Okay, and they'll get into a discussion that's a worldview clash because their lenses are clashing. But they may miss the most important layer of what's really going on in a conversation. And that's the third layer. The layer is my identity. What is at stake for me, and how do I see myself in this conversation? And why do I care so much? What's going on at that level? Because that's actually what's driving the way I form my lens, and the way I view the topic. All important conversations have those three levels attached to them. Okay, next slide. So I want to talk a little bit about the dynamics of this. Now, I introduced this illustration yesterday, but I want to unpack it a little bit. I told you yesterday, I confess, that I had the gift of multitasking. Okay, I can do multiple things at once. Now, psychologists will tell you that I'm lying, that you really can't multitask and give your undivided attention to multiple things at once. That's not possible. Okay? So we'll start there. But I, I believe I have this gift, and I can exercise it. And I do it on a regular basis in my home. When I'm sitting in front of my computer screen, working on something that's very, very important, and my wife walks in the room and says something to me, and then she says this, you're not paying attention to me. And as I said yesterday, that's the hour of decision. Okay, I've got to decide at that moment whether I'm going to defend what I'm hearing at an identity level. Because what I'm hearing at an identity level is you're not a good husband. Uh, and so I can defend, no, my integrity, yes, this is who I am. And I, I'm going to show you that I can hear what you're saying because I can repeat the words you just uttered to me, either word for word or something very close, so much so that you won't be happy with the response. Because she's also operating at an identity level, and the identity level that she's operating at is, is that whatever is going on in your world, I'm not so important to you that you give me your undivided attention. So there's what's going on at the surface, and there's what's going on underneath. In fact, you could probably unpack most marital conflict. You're getting a two-for-one today, okay? (laughs) You could probably unpack most marital conflict, because it's not about the topic that you're talking about. It's about the identity relationship and the identity clash that's happening underneath. And so whether I'm in a marital conversation or a conversation with my kids or a conversation with my neighbors or I'm in a political conversation or a social conversation, triphonics is at work. And that's important to understand because most of us think we're talking about the topic, but the topic that we're talking about oftentimes is only the frosting on the cake. That's worth knowing. And that means that triphonics creates choices about, one, how I interact at the lens level, and two, how I interact at the identity level, not just my identity, but the identity of the person that I'm interacting with as I'm engaging them. All pretty abstract, but pretty important. Okay, so we go into this space. So now I'm going to ask you, and if you think you didn't sleep last night, okay, this is going to be a painful question to raise. Because I'm going to ask you, what kind of listener are you? Because part of what I am saying is, to be a good conversationalist, you've got to be a very good listener. And so here's the question. There are really two kinds of listeners Okay, there is the 
rebutter, debater. And one of the things that apologetics risks doing to us is turning us into a rebutter or a debater. Because I have all these facts that I've studied about my faith that I want to let people know about. Or I can be a listener. Now, I will, I'm going to give you a litmus test for how you can know what your primary motive is, which box you're going to tick when I ask what kind of a listener you are. So someone shares something with you, and you, remember, you can't multitask. And you have a choice as they're listening to you. You can process what they are saying to you and make the effort to understand what they are saying and why. Or you can formulate my response. I'm willing to bet you that in most controversial contexts in which we have conversations that oftentimes devolve into a debate, what's going on is, is that you've got two people who are in the rebutter-debater mode interacting with each other, and that creates a collision. So that's a dilemma. Next slide. So here's the way to think about this. Do you form a rebuttal or work on understanding by repeating and looking for confirmation that you've understood what's been said to you by the person who you're interacting with? In other words, do you respond with a set of facts that someone gives you with a set of facts of your own, competing set of facts, or do you ask questions, perhaps, about where their facts come from or whatever, or clarifying what they're saying, or saying something like, this is very helpful in communication, no matter what context you're in. Can I say in my own words what you just said to me, and can you tell me whether I got what you said? And at this point, you're not interested in who's right or wrong. You're just interested in seeing how they are seeing the space that you're talking about and why. Because there's a difference between understanding what you're talking about and what the perspectives are that are on the table and making an assessment of what those are. Those are two separate steps. And sometimes we'll assume motives about why someone else is acting and responding the way they are. And that's dangerous because in order to do that well, you've got to be a prophet. So, remember that seeking to understand someone is not the same as agreeing with them. I can seek to understand you and not necessarily be in the mode where I'm going to agree with you, but all I'm trying to do is to understand, all right, what, where, where's this topic sit between us and what's going on? And I'm interested enough in who you are as a person to take the time to make sure that I am hearing you before we engage. That's really important. Because that communicates respect. And if you do that with someone that you're interacting with, you open up the door for them to do the same back to you. And that's important. Because that may give you the space to build the bridge to talk about where you're coming from and why. Because you've shown the courtesy of doing the same with them. Don't forget that pursuing this communicates respect, and communication of respect opens up doors. So these are the principles that are underneath the mode of listening that I want to highlight to you is so important in engagement today, because being able to understand what really motivates someone and why they believe what they believe 
will actually perhaps open doors to help you know this is how I can talk about what God is doing and what's going on in the gospel given where they're coming from. Because they may have values that you actually share. It's just that they view that value in this way and you view that same value in that way. And now you know what you're talking about in relationship to each other. All right, next slide. Oh, stop lights and go lights. I'm going to now mention to you five things that sabotage our conversations. And in mentioning these five things that sabotage our conversations, I'm going to be going over things that you see on a regular basis that reinforce that this is the way most discourse happens in the public square that we engage in. And they're all bad examples that don't help us in conversations. I'm going to do five of them one at a time. Okay, next slide. The first is what I call the quick confession and pivot. I work and I've done a lot of public speaking. I've worked with public relations uh, departments in the background to talk about, you know, how to best represent your brand in the public square, that kind of thing. Okay? And I actually am taught the pivot. The pivot is when someone brings up something that's uncomfortable with the position that you hold, you get out of dodge as quickly as you can. Okay? You pivot. You turn the conversation from what's been raised to something else and you get there as quickly as you can. And the quick confession and pivot is you're in a conversation where someone is raising something legitimate that you should be aware of and be dealing with, but because what you're aware of and need to be dealing with is uncomfortable, you're trying to get out of dodge as quickly as you can. So you either engage in the quick confession, yeah, I know that's right, and you go, yes, but. And the word but is a big deal. Because the person is asking you to address this, and your but says, no, I don't want to talk about that, I want to talk about this. And you are two ships passing in the night. And we do this all the time. Some people are even quicker. Some people don't even take the bother to confess. They're not Catholics, okay? They don't take the bother to confess. They go directly to the butt. They pivot as fast as they can. Now, I don't have to tell you how often you see this. Just look at your local politicians and how often they get asked a question they do not want to answer. So what do they do? They get out of Dodge as fast as they can and they pivot and they talk about something else, and they try and go there and stay there as much as they can. And a good journalist will push them to answer the question that was asked, and it's a very uncomfortable conversation. That's the first thing that we do, the quick confession and pivot. Second one, demonization. I call this the exorcist. This is conversation by labels. We label someone. We label someone with something that we think should be rejected, and then we do this. The label is designed to paint someone in black and bury them. 
That's what it does. And it's demonization. And it is an equal opportunity employer because everyone does it. Our entitle, entire political public relations majors in labeling and putting people to death through the label. So this is how it works. Here we go. Remember, it's an exorcist. C for conservative. M for Marxist. S for socialist. F for fundamentalist. Take your pick. It's coming from all sides. We all do it. It is ultimately, even if there's a modicum of truth to some of the labels, dismissive and gets in the way of a fruitful conversation. And yet, we do it all the time, and it has poisoned our public discourse. Because the thing that comes out of demonization is, I don't want to talk about whatever the facts are, whatever's going on underneath, I'm just going to label you so I can dismiss you and move on. That's the effect of it. That's why it's so devastating. Third category. Third category, mode of assignment. Ooh, I love this one. Okay? I'm going to tell you why you are telling me what you're telling you, and that motive is usually negative. And this is why I don't need to pay attention to what you're saying to me, because it's coming from that place. And this is why you're telling me this. Now, I've already alluded to this. The problem with this one is, you better be right. Because if you're wrong, you know what it is? It's slander. So you want to be careful about attributing motive to someone for what they're doing, why they're doing what they're doing. This is why sometimes asking questions is better because they will tell you why you're doing what they're doing if you ask them about it. Now, you may or may not accept that that's why they're doing what they're doing, but you better accept the fact that this is why they perceive they're doing what they're doing, and that's important in the conversation too. Remember, when you're getting a spiritual GPS reading on where someone is coming from, the issue is to understand what their whys and wherefores are before you're making an assessment about those whys and wherefores. And it's important to know that. Illustration. If you think mother-in-laws are important, grandmother-in-laws are more important. And uh, in my family, my grandmother-in-law had a very problematic experience with the church. She was married to someone, she was married in a family in which her father went to church on a regular basis, but was verbally abusive and didn't live out the faith that they attended in their church from week to week. And my grandmother-in-law had a bias against the Christian church as a result because of her grown-up experience. Do you think it's important for me to know that before I talk to her about the gospel? Four, never, 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 never surrender. You're fighting for ground. You cannot give any ground. You've got to win. Never, never acknowledge any possibility or any contribution or any weakness in the conversation that you're having because you've got to win. 
That's death to a conversation. Fifth. Next slide. Tribalism. What fuels the desire to never surrender is a form of tribalism, which tied to our identity, which says my side cannot lose and cannot give ground. Can't happen. And one of the facts of pluralism is there are many tribes in this world. And if none of them are engaging in such a way that they interact with each other and are willing to negotiate space with one another but just dig in, guess what you have? A thing called gridlock. Now here's a question. Do we have gridlock in our culture today? Okay, so those are the five things that we do that damage our conversations, okay? But I'm an optimist, okay? My wife will tell you, even if there's three drops in that glass, I'm going to say it's half full. Okay, so what's the other half of the equation? What is going to allow us to advance conversations and to kind of break the gridlock that we tend to be dropped in because the culture wants us to duke it out? First, be vulnerable about your own stuff. When a person acknowledges something that's a problem, and you know it's a problem, don't try and fake it and pivot. Acknowledge it as a problem. Put that out on the table. I'm going to use a sensitive illustration. Today, in the area of race, oftentimes, white people are charged with being racist, whether they personally commit to any racist personal act or not, okay, because of what's said about systematic racism and the fact that, at least in our history, it's been, our history has played out in such a way that certain races have had advantage and other races have been disadvantaged by the way things have been set up. So when someone comes at me, and I've been in these spaces, and says, you are a racist, I understand two things. One is they're not talking about me personally, even though they've rhetorically framed it that way. They're talking about the space I occupy as part of a group. It's the first thing to recognize. And the second thing I do is, is that when I acknowledge that that is a part of our background and that that is part of the reality that we all wrestle with in the race space, guess what? Our conversation changes. It changes because... I have been vulnerable to say I am well aware that there are certain things that have happened in our society that have ended up being an advantage to the group I belong with and has ended up being a disadvantage to the group you belong with. And to just get to that space changes the way that conversation takes place. Be vulnerable about your own stuff and be aware that some conversations are not about where you are as an individual, but by what you represent within your identity. And sometimes we don't make that distinction. We personalize it. That's space number one. Two, stick to the issues. That's why you stay out of motive. That's why you don't demonize. Two is actually the opposite of demonization. You stick to the issues. You try and get before in the conversation a variety of data and facts that will allow you to discuss the space 
And both sides are able to bring the data and facts that they're working with because I guarantee you each side is cherry-picking that data and facts. That's part, of the, that's part of the way you go into the conversation. Third, be humble. It's actually behind my move in the first example that I gave. I'm not coming into the conversation to try and say that I have everything totally right. Because here's another piece of information that will be valuable to us all, and that is that none of us is omniscient. And none of us is perfect. So I have every right to be humble. And the more I show that, the more I create space in our conversations to interact. Even about things I have convictions about. I'm going to come about back to convictions because the next one is really important. Be honest. Here is what I am not saying. I am not saying you give up on your convictions and you don't share them. No, if you create the right environment, you have given yourself the room to do exactly that. But here's what you have to do with the convictions that you have, and that is you need to rank them. You need to rank the convictions that you're absolutely certain about with the stuff that you're willing to discuss. You need to rank them in such a way that you recognize that I may hold this conviction, but you may raise something towards me that tells me I may need to tweak the way I see my conviction. And being open to that as a possibility is a part of the conversations that you have. You may actually learn something from someone who disagrees with you. That can happen. It's a miracle, but it can happen. Here's the way to think about your convictions. I compare it to a four-scale level. Here's level one. Level one is, and very few things qualify for this, I am so certain of this, I would argue with God about it. Okay? Peter, I call Peter. Peter's my example of number one. So Peter sometimes argued with Jesus about what he was saying to him. Jesus said, I'm going I'm to suffer. Messiah's going to suffer. Peter said, no, that isn't what the Messiah does. God said to Peter, eat. Of the, and acts, eat of these unclean animals. No, I don't eat unclean animals. Okay? So, co- convictions at the top of the hill, the things you die for, belong in category A. Category B, I know there's a disagreement, and I'm still pretty sure I'm right. Okay, that's category B. Category C, if we get to heaven and I find out you're right, I won't be surprised. That's category C. I've made a judgment. You've made a judgment. It's a close call. I could be wrong about this. I'm interested in hearing about it. Category D. Let's be honest and flip a coin. Neither of us knows. All right? So all the interaction that we have operates on those scales, and people prioritize those differently. That's how the lenses work. You know, think you're optimist. Can you, it's A clear or B? Okay? All right? That's what you're dealing with in there. The judgments that come in, they're judgments that get unfurled in an honest, deep, difficult conversation that puts you in the position to analyze what you're looking through and how you're seeing it and what you may have included that they need to hear and what they have included that you may need to hear. Fifth. Parse the issues. That's part of this judgment scale is what I'm calling parsing the issues. It's to recognize that many issues have layers to them. 
They're, are, they're operating in multi and multi-level simultaneously. And each one of those levels is coming with judgments about what's going on. And your substantive conversations will parse that out. Here's what it will avoid. And this is another habit of our culture that has trapped us. It will avoid absolute binaries. Absolute binaries is this view is 100% right and that view is 100% wrong and make the choice. That's actually not the way most of the world works, particularly in complex areas. We have lost the ability in our culture to calibrate our decisions. Most conflicts that we have, because we live in a broken and dysfunctional world, this is a theology that has built into it the theology of a broken world. By definition, a broken world is dysfunctional. Things are not aligned as they ought to be. And so oftentimes what we have in the public space is a collision of two sets of values, each of which has value, but also has to be calibrated to the other value that's in play. And so what often happens in many of our political, I can go through our political issues one at a time and I can articulate, I think, what the collision is and where the value is. And these values collide because they're not aligned. It's dysfunctional, remember? And, and then what we do in our public discourse is, I adopt this value and hold on to it, and I minimize or try and totally neutralize this other value, and I never, never calibrate them in relationship to each other. I wish I had a lot of time to unpack that, because that's actually a very important idea. Because the moment you take it out of the all-or-nothing binary, you have the basis for a conversation. Okay. Almost done. As I said, there are three types of issues. There are worldview clashes. That's where the things are aligned and they're absolutely, there is no middle ground. The two most important worldview clashes that we have going on today, one of them is related to abortion and the beginning of life, and the second one is related to the definitions tied to sexuality. Those are, discussions are so intense because they are genuine worldview clashes that are going on. This is also a part of the parsing. A second category is what I called shared goal, different paths. This is a little different. This is actually an easier category because the idea here is everyone shares the same goal, but they debate how to get there. I will put race in this category, and here's why. If I walk out on the street and ask the basic question, should the races get along, I will get numbers that politicians will be jealous of. The answer will be yes, we should get along with one another. If I ask the next question, how are we gonna get there? Now we're in a conversation. But at least we share the same goal. That's not like a worldview clash. And then the third category is the one that I say solid values that are in, in conflict because they're colliding. This is immigration. Immigration is the idea on the one hand of a country ought to have a right to, set, to decide what kind of society it's going to be and to set its laws and expect its laws to be followed. But immigration, on the other hand, says you want to be aware of, of, 
of the needs that other people have in the situations they may find themselves in that are drawing them to come to your country? How do you balance those two things? And how do you balance it when you had an immigration policy that invited these people in and didn't follow your own laws for a long time, and now all of a sudden you try and impose those laws, and so now you've got children who've born here and who've been here all their life, it's the only society they know, but they're not protected by the law if you strictly enforce the laws that you wrote because you've ignored how for 20 years you handled this before you got to this debate. And what's the moral responsibility there? That's a collision that needs a calibration. And if I'm choosing one or the other, I'm not going to have that conversation. Next slide. So here's what I'm saying. You need to learn. We need to learn to recognize we all make judgments about what to prioritize. And then in many cases, core identity concerns are driving the judgments that motivate our choices. That's true of everyone in the conversation. Listening helps us to see what is driving someone else and helps us to have a better conversation because we eventually establish what we're really talking about. And when you do it this way, you can't, may not be able to see that bottom level, but it, it builds respect and trust. I'm, done, I'm basically done. Last slide, I think. So here's our goal, to pursue a common life in the world with people different from us. That's what it means to live in a poor world. The church exists to be our home in the midst of that pluralism. When we try and make the world the church and sidestep the gospel, we mess it up. We've got to figure out how to share space together. We need to get along and we need to do it in a way in which there's give and take but I guarantee you, if you do it the way that I'm talking about, you've left open the door for the gospel in a way that simply being confrontary only doesn't. One final thing. When I share the gospel, the gospel is an interesting combination of two things that are in this tension because of a fallen world. There's the challenge because of sin that I have to talk about in relation to the gospel message. And there's an invitation that says that what Christianity is offering people is a space that will make total sense out of their life. It's good news because it is restorative. It's good news because not only is there forgiveness of sin, not only, I, I don't get saved to be somewhere forever. Depends on who I'm there with. I get saved because I get reconnected to the creator God who made me and who makes sense out of my life. So I'm going to end with what caused um, Delia to have sleeping problems. People are not the enemy. They're the goal. And good conversations and building that trust and care in how you engage, even in difficult spaces, might be a way to open a door to what the gospel is all about. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time, the opportunity to reflect on how we engage. This is not an easy topic. It's an uncomfortable one. But it's one that we have to come to senses, our senses on. Teach us, we pray, to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For it is the grace of God 
that achieves the righteousness of God. Amen.